Absolute Zero by Robert P. Fitton. Episode 1, The Execution of Willie Newman. September 1978. Gary Phillips stood next to his boss, Herbert Donnelly, as they said their goodbyes to an important client. Donnelly shut the door and rolled his eyes as he headed for his office. I want to see you before you go, Gary, he said as he turned on the portable television on his desk. Right, Herb, said the bushy-haired Phillips as he went directly to his own office and sat down behind the desk. He stroked his thick brown mustache and debated whether to remain in the office. For over 20 years, he had put in just that kind of extra time and they paid off in the form of his nifty salary. Every day for those 20 years, he put forth a pleasant image, an image which was so vital to his advertising job. However, the years had become empty for him. The day's monotonous repetitions and the huge paycheck could not erase his lack of satisfaction with life. His decision made, he stood up and gathered his papers and put them in his leather briefcase. He grabbed his suit coat in one hand and the briefcase in the other as he left the office. Before he could make the turn into Donnelly's office, the older man called for him. I told you I wanted to see you, yelled Donnelly above the sound of the television. Phillips looked down at his boss, leaning back in his chair, smoking a cigarette. Donnelly was a short, rotund man with a high forehead, his hair graying more rapidly than he would have liked. Phillips assumed he had high blood pressure, for his face always seemed to be a bright red, especially when he suffered coughing spasm from the effects of constant smoking. Not only was his smoking causing a physical problem, but his appearance suffered. He smelled like cigarette smoke, and his suit coat was usually covered with spent ashes. Asked Phillips meekly, You want to see me, Herb? Asked Phillips. Donnelly adjusted his dark rimmed glasses and motioned Phillips into his office. Look at this guy, will ya? He said as he walked around the side of the desk in order to get a look at the television. Gary, this is the guy they're going to electrocute tonight out at the prison. Listen to the arrogant bastard. Why they give a convicted murderer airtime is beyond me. That's right, agreed Phillips as he set down his briefcase. I'd forgotten about that. Imagine, right here in Craigville. The man on the television screen, his head not yet shaven, sat in his light blue prison-issue clothes as he talked to the reporter. Then the question must be asked, are you afraid to die? Asked the reporter. No, sir. I want to die. The sooner the better. What I did was wrong. I have to pay for what I did. Answered the prisoner. Do you? What do you mean, do I? That's the way it is, man. He responded to what he perceived an impertinent question. So in essence, Mr. Newman, you're saying that you agree with the Constitutional Amendment passed over two years ago. Look, all I'm saying is I killed Chester Johnson, a human being. Walked into that grocery store and I killed him in cold blood. Now I gotta pay. The picture switched back to the television studio. I am Harry Shaw, said the announcer. That was our interview taped this morning with Willie Newman was expected to die this evening at the Craigville prison. Donnelly leaped forward in his chair and shut off the set. Bastard, I'm not going to miss this one. Think of how the family of that guy Johnson feels. Phillips, although very impressionable, was also non-committal about the whole issue, and his prime concern was getting out of Donnelly's office. Well, I can work on that Hanson account tonight from home, Herb, he said. Donnelly took a deep drag on a cigarette and exhaled and tried to speak, but his words were drowned out by the mass mucus and gagging. When he settled down, he leaned back in the chair, holding his cigarette as if nothing had happened. Well, I suppose you can work at home tonight, 
That's not like you, Gary. Your attitude of late has been poor, very poor, and your ideas have been sluggish, and your reports have been sloppy, criticized Darnley as he put out the remainder of his butt in the ashtray. Herb, if you buy what? Darnley asked as he popped another cigarette out of his pack. If I let you go home early every day, we're, look, we're loaded up with work as it is. I can tell when Ira Hansen left, he's going to be hounding us for another meeting. <coughs> another meeting. If you'd been more concise, you wouldn't need another meeting. The anger built up inside of Phillips because he knew Donnelly never shouldered any of the burden himself and always passed the work on to associates. Donnelly would refer to himself as a public relations man, but to Phillips he was nothing more than a bag of wind. Phillips let his anger level off as he gently muttered, Hey, I'm sorry. Well, you should be. If you would take this job a little bit more seriously. How much time do you want me to put in, Herb? You want me to work around the clock for 20 years? For 20 years I've been putting in time and effort. You would just want more and more. Are you trying to tell me how to run the agency? Asked Darnley as he stood up. I was just saying that go home. But that Hanson campaign better be damn good and it better be on my desk by 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. He shouted loudly, which irritated his throat. And then he began one of his coughing fits. Phillips picked up his briefcase, and with an extreme feeling of disenchantment in the pit of his stomach, he left the office. It was his usual practice to take the elevator down the five-story office building, but he was just too infuriated to stand. So he hurried down the stairs, emerging on the sidewalk in the afternoon sun. As he walked briskly toward the parking lot a block away, he wondered if he, how much more he could take of Donnelly's constant badgering. He stopped at the corner across from the parking lot and waited for the light to change. The walk sign flashed and he crossed the street. Excuse me, sir, said a young man on the other side of the curb. I'm from LIFE, L-I-F-E, the Organization Against Capital Punishment. I gave it the office, <laughs> laughed Phillips as he walked right by the man. No, wait, said the younger man as he pursued Phillips right into the parking lot. I want you to take one of our leaflets. All right, all right, said Phillips as he took the leaflet and kept walking to his car. Protest rally tonight before the execution at the prison, shouted the young man as Phillips glanced down at the green printed leaflet. There was a long list of grievances and arguments in bold type. And then he noticed the name Max Crager, chairman, in italicized print at the bottom. He flung the leaflet, his briefcase, and his suit coat into his tiny red MG sports car and left for home. It was not long before he was turning the MG into his long driveway. He shut off the ignition and posted to the three-car garage. In a certain way, he did not want to get out of the car and he sat with his hands on the steering wheel, looking over to his spacious home to the left. Not only was his job taxing his nerve, but his marriage had been shaky for some time. The departure of his youngest daughter to college a few weeks before further exacerbated his relations with his wife. They were alone now, and he was beginning to question his place in the world. Reluctantly, he opened the door to the sports car and took out his briefcase and suit coat. Then he trudged up the fieldstone walk through the crisp fallen leaves and up to the front door. Taking a deep breath, he twisted open the doorknob, preparing himself for the worst. Ellen! Ellen! He called as he opened the heavy wooden door. He set down the briefcase and heaved the suit coat onto a chair in the hallway as he walked into the living room. Ellen! An inner wave of relief passed through him as he cherished the thought that she might not be home. 
His expectations came crashing down when he, when he heard the back door close and the familiar sound of his wife's whining voice. Gary, is that you? Yeah, it's me. He answered as he went straight to the liquor cabin and mixed himself a drink. Pouring the bourbon into a wide glass, he saw his wife, a slightly overweight woman of 40 who dressed like she was 20. She wore a black skirt with a red pullover top. Her hair was dyed to a deep brown and styled once a week. Had your hair done, huh? It looks good, said Phillips as he downed the drink and quickly mixed another. You, you don't like it, do you? Looks good, said Phillips as he rubbed his tired face and drank some more liquor. Why are you home at this hour? she demanded. I came home to do some work, he answered. You had another fight with Donnelly. Honestly, Gary, you better watch your step or you'll lose your job. You let me worry about that, will you? asked Phillips as he ambled to the picture window overlooking the front yard. He looked through the thick panes as his wife continued her assault. You know, you always got along with her, she said as she too made herself a drink. You seem to have this distant attitude lately. Anyways, if you're going to do any work, you better get it done before seven. Why? Why seven? He asked as he sipped on the drink and stared into the yard. What's at seven? She yelled as she came toward him, spilling some of her drink on the white rug. What's at seven? The bridge club. The bridge club's at seven. Ah, he said in disgust with his back toward her. I don't want another argument, Gary. If you want to stay home, good luck to you. She left the room and Phillips looked out at what he had built over all the years. A beautiful house, lofty trees spreading over a neatly trimmed yard, and money. Money for anything they wanted. He tried to put away all his problems out of his mind as he watched the autumn sun streaming between the remaining leaves on the trees. The serenity was soothing, but not lasting, as his wife trounced back into the room to have the last word. You know they're expecting us, Gary. He slowly turned from the window and answered her calmly. I'm not going to the bridge club tonight, nor do I even have the slightest intention to ever frequent the bridge club again. He said with a false smile and dumped the rest of the drink down his throat. You pompous idiot, she raged. Too bad, he said, his feelings growing more intense. If it's not this, it's something else. Image, isn't it? Image, image, image. I've had it, Ellen. I'm sick of planning my life around the opinions of other people. She was baffled by his words. <laughs> You're cracking up, Gary, she shot back, touching a nerve in Phillips. I've seen it coming for a long time. You need to see a shrink. He stared at her briefly for a few moments and then became furious. No, Ellen, I don't need to see a shrink. It's you. You, Donnelly, and all the other pig-headed snobs in this town who need to see a shrink. All I want is a little fulfillment out of my life. Is that too much to ask? You can't take it. That's your problem. She laughed and she mixed herself yet another drink. You're right. I don't need this, he said as he headed for the hall. Now where are you going? She wanted to know. Phillips picked up his coat and spoke as he left the house. I'm going where I don't have to listen to you, Ellen. He ran down the walk and hopped into his car. I'm calling a shrink for you, Gary, she said, threatening from the doorway as Phillips backed the car out of the driveway. He shifted into first gear, screeching the tires on the pavement as he roared down the street. Ellen slammed the door and leaned back against it as she succinctly proclaimed her opinion of her husband. Bastard!
Phillips sped past the other upper-middle-class houses of Craigville with their seemingly uninterrupted stretches of finely manicured lawns. Soon he was on the outskirts of town, near the interstate highway, but his destination was still uncertain. He downshifted the MG as he neared the ramp to the highway. His auburn hair blew back in the early evening air as he rocketed up the ramp to the second gear. As he rocketed up the ramp in second gear, turning onto the highway without looking for the oncoming traffic. Once in the outer lane, he pushed the accelerator to the floor. The life leaflet spun into the air as if caught by a tornado, hanging momentarily and then twisting back to the highway. It occurred to him, as he saw the leaflet tumble across the road, that that prison rally might provide an interesting diversion for him. With a sudden recklessness, he swung the tiny car onto the grassy median strip, bumping and jostling his way to the opposite flow of traffic. Quickly, he headed south toward the Craigville State Prison and the pending execution. He passed the forested hills, the sun popping between the higher ones, and after a few miles, he saw the sign for the prison. The old concrete building was nestled between the hills to the right and could be seen directly from the highway. Even more impressive than the bulky fortress was the huge crowd of demonstrators that had gathered out in front of the main gates. Phillips left the interstate, traveling a short distance on the highway to the dirt road that led to the prison. The road led through a grassy field filled with rows and rows of automobiles. Policemen were all over the grounds and several of them directed Phillips to an area to his left. He left the MG's top down, taking his coat, and he walked quickly toward the assemblage. Ahead of him, a young woman was in a panic. Her clipboard, filled with all her papers, had fallen to the ground, and she scurried as fast as she could to pick up the scattered papers. Phillips trotted up to her and joined the effort, bringing the remaining papers over to her. Hey, thank you. All these people, no one bothered to help, she said as she stacked the papers on her clipboard while holding a cassette recorder. Phillips looked down at the white lettering that followed the contours of her red jersey. I read it in the baseball news, asked Phillips. Yeah, I, I work for the baseball news, she said as she turned and trotted toward the crowd. By the way, thanks, she called back as she reached the crowd and blended into the mass. Phillips, his coat over his arm, walked up to the front. There's a wide variety of people from every age group and nationality. Even some carried placards or banners symbolizing their strong feelings against the constitutional amendment and the resulting law. He meandered around in the crowd, scanning the area. In front, abutting the gray stone wall, was the speaker's platform. A microphone was planted in the center, but the platform itself was empty and the crowd remarkably quiet. Why is everyone so quiet, he asked. He asked an older man to his right. What's that? What's that? asked the man. I said, why is everyone so quiet? Ingersoll, for they're waiting to hear about the appeal to Governor Ingersoll for a pardon, he answered, holding his head. Think he'll get it? asked Phillips. Nah, balked the man. No one will stand up to the law. The governor knows if he pardons Newman, he'll lose the election hands down. Would you? Would I what? asked Phillips. Would you give him a pardon? demanded the old man as if Phillips were governor. I, 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 I don't know, replied Phillips, as if he had not thought about the issue at all. He turned away from the old man and wandered into the crowd. Circling around, he finally stopped and looked up to the platform and waited for something to happen. The whole scene was so out of context with his usual lifestyle that he felt apprehensive. Dumb, stupid idiot! shouted a large woman in tight-fitting jeans behind his shoulder. 
Phillips wondered what he had done, and he turned to the lady, rubbing his ear. Me? What did I do? He asked with a bewildering expression on his face. I don't know. What did you do? She asked sarcastically. You just called me an idiot, he exclaimed. Not you, pal. Ingersoll! She snapped, shaking her head, and she walked away from him. Now how am I supposed to know that? Asked Phillips, gesturing with his hand. The rally had been a diversion, but not in the way he had planned. He decided to make his way back to his car when the young woman in the red jersey caught his eye. She was talking to several men who, from their notebooks and recorders, appeared to be reporters. He studied her bushy brown hair and slender frame. She had a quick smile and bright eyes, the color of which he had not noticed. As the men bid goodbye, he mustered up enough courage to go over and talk to to go over and talk to her. He had taken but one step when a middle-aged man in a gray hat and brown baggy pants darted in front of his path. Hey, Jack! She yelled to the man as she grabbed his arm. Not now, Darby, not now, Darby. I'm onto something big, really big, he said, moving his cigarette with every syllable. You're always onto something big, Jack. What is it this time? Phillips moved in closer as the man lowered his voice. What I've got, Darby, my girl, will shake this country upside down and back again. He said with fire in his gray eyes. Another one of those stories, she snickered. Oh, go ahead, laugh. He warned and he squeezed back into the crowd. You'll see, you'll see. Phillips walked up to the reporter as she watched the man push through the people. He looked in a hurry, Darby, said Phillips. How'd you know my name? She smiled and she looked over at him. Phillips looked into her eyes, blue. I mean, I overheard the guy talking. Oh, well, well, he mentioned your name. Oh, she answered. He's a jerk. I never pay much attention to him. He works for the National Fact Finder. Most of what he prints is non-factual, to put it mildly. Are you covering this execution? Asked Phillips. Indirectly. She said as she looked down at his diamond-studded wedding band. I'm here because Carrie's coming here. Brian Carey, the baseball player? No, Father Carey, the village vicar. Of course, Brian Carey. Told you I work for Baseball News, Darby O'Malley, around the diamond, she said as Phillips shook his head. Never read the column, eh? Nope, I haven't read the column, he answered as she smiled. Well, what's your name? My name's Gary Phillips. I live right here in Craigville, said Phillips. Oh, come over to protest the great injustice of it all, she asked cynically. Funny, you don't look like one of those diehards. Oh, very perceptive, smiled Phillips. To tell you the truth, I had an argument with my wife, and I decided to come out here. I thought it would take my mind off my problems. Yeah? Well, Gary, I can tell you that this is the last place I want to be. If you know anything about Kerry, and you know he's stuck his nose into about every social issue you can think of. Now he's into this. God help the owners of that baseball team he plays for. Well, this place is strange. This place is strange, remarked Phillips. Oh, it gives me the willies, said Darby as she looked back to the dirt road. Carrie's flying in from Miami. Plays for the Miami Tropics. Should be here in a short time. I've got to go, she said as she held his hand briefly. Thanks again for helping me with my papers, she added, and she let go of his hand and headed for the road. My pleasure, Phillips yelled to her as he grinned. He was still ecstatic as he turned with some commotion to his left, found himself staring into a live television camera. Hello, I'm Steve Robbins. Uh, we're gauging the opinions of people here today for Channel 7 News. Uh, can I have your name, please? Um, Gary Phillips. Mr. Phillips, do you think that the intentions of the death penalty law have produced the desired results in the country today? 
Phillips was taken aback by the fact that his image was now being beamed to thousands of people. Well, I really haven't thought about the true intentions, he said, thinking out loud. Of course, the whole scenario we're watching here today could be considered morally reprehensible. Yes, but is the law working, Mr. Phillips? Badgered the reporter. The question, I believe, is academic in light of the flagrant disregard for human life. On both sides, he lectured, asking himself how he'd been cornered into such an untenable situation. Are you involved with the life movement? I work for the Donnelly and Quigley Agency in Craigville, replied Phillips, wishing he hadn't said that. Very good. Thank you, Mr. Phillips, said Robbins as he moved on. Phillips cringed as he realized the implications of what he had just said. Donnelly would be furious, not only because of the opinions expressed, but because he had announced the name of Donnelly and Quigley over the air. The picture on thousands of television sets flashed from the shaky close-up of the demonstration to a long shot of the hills and the heavily fortified prison with the barbed wire. The audio portion was overlapped by the voice of another reporter who was in a booth outside the main protest area. Thank you, Steve Robbins, for those spontaneous interviews. We are, of course, looking at the state prison at Craigville on the outer fringes of this small New Jersey town of Craigville. If you're just joining us, this is Channel 7's exclusive coverage of the execution of Willie Newman. Newman is a self-confessed murderer of a grocery store owner, and he was convicted and sentenced to death in the electric chair some 30 days ago. The group of demonstrators in the lower portions of your screen have come here from around the country and the world to protest what is about to take place here this evening. Most are members of a group called Life. Let injustice finally end. And their efforts today would be in vain unless a pardon or heavenly miracle takes place within the next 15 minutes. The image of a sprightly young newscaster in a three-piece suit and neatly styled hair was superimposed over the prison scene. Good evening, I'm Harry Shaw, reporting this evening on the 35th execution in the United States since the enactment of the Capital Punishment Act of over a year ago. Willie Newman, the man who says he wants to die, will be sent to the electric chair just minutes from now. A last-minute request for a pardon was sent by Newman's lawyers to, to Governor William Ingersoll. However, if the past is any reflection of the future, that pardon will be turned down. The governors of the... Shaw paused when he heard instructions being piped into his earpiece, and he raised his hand in order to hear the message more clearly. He looked toward the protesters and then spoke into the camera. We have uh, just received word that life leader Max Krieger has been in contact with Willie Newman's lawyers concerning the pardon request. Krieger, you can see him in the right of your screen, is making his way through the crowd. We do not know what the result of his consultation has been. Said Char as his image was removed from the screen and the camera zoomed into the platform area. A slender bald man dressed in jeans and a murky gray suit coat stepped onto the platform. He bowed his head as he trudged up to the microphone. In his trembling hands, he held some notes, and the crowd was hush as he finally lifted his head up to speak. I have just talked to uh, attorney Alan Wright. At, at 5.45 Eastern Daylight Time, Governor William Ingersoll denied the final request for a pardon. As the crowd responded, Craig's last words were smothered by the collective disapproval from the unbelieving crowd. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, if I could just have some order here, I want to say that I'm sorry that the governor has denied the final request for a pardon to prevent the execution of Willie Newman. Shouted Craig. 
He put his notes in his suit coat as the people buzzed with indignation, and he crunched his narrow nose, attempting to vent his feelings. What this means, ladies and gentlemen, is another human being who we put to death in this country. Maybe I should just say that another human being will also be murdered, compounding the tragedy already thrust upon this community by the death of Chester Johnson. What kind of a people are we that we have to perform such a vengeful, barbaric, and inhuman act? Governor Ingersoll, if you are either listening or watching this broadcast, I implore you, for the sake of the dignity of the human race, to please let this human being live. Killing Willie Newman is not going to bring back Chester Johnson, nor is it going to relieve, nor is it going to prevent future killings. Please, Governor, let him live. Let him live! He repeated as he motioned for the crowd to join him. As they screamed for justice, Shaw's voice was overdubbed. There you have it. The last minute pardon to Governor Ingersoll has been denied. Unless the governor recants, Willie Newman will be executed in the electric chair some eight minutes from now at 6 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Shaw reached for his headphone and listened once again. We have just been advised by commission officials that they are ready inside the prison. He said as the television picture changed. A long and bleak prison corridor interrupted by three sets of sliding barred doors came over the screens. Once again, we must caution you that this broadcast is intended as a detriment to homicide by the Congress of the United States of America. It is not meant for amusement, nor is it meant for entertainment. Executions are gruesome and ugly sights. If you have children in your home, we urge you to either send them to another room or shut off your set. As Part 2, Section B of the Capital Punishment Act prescribes, the commission shall provide public access to the execution itself as a clear detriment to future acts of hostility. So once more, we caution you that what you are about to see may be very, very offensive. As Shaw finished his statement, a loud, low-pitched noise like that of a foghorn repeated itself over the airwaves as large block letters flashed on the screen, CAUTION, EXECUTION IMMINENT. In the lower left corner of the screens in yellow letters was the exact time left to the fateful hour of 6 p.m. The giant red letters were removed and the screens were split into two separate vantage points and the drama began to unfold. The prison corridor was on the right, and on the left was the scrawny Max Krager speaking to the crowd and pleading with the governor to stop the execution. Governor, it is six minutes off, he yelled. Please stop this insanity. You are a highly moral and decent man. Please let Willie Newman live. You have the power. Of course, the protest is persisting in an 11th hour attempt to save the life of Willie Newman. All the demonstrations, I might add, have been completely peaceful with no violence. I've been informed that Willie Newman has been taken from his cell by commission officials and is being escorted to the execution room. Said Shars as the screens converted to a full shot of the corridor. Again, again, we caution you this is a gruesome sight. Our crews are not allowed inside the prison, and what you are seeing is being broadcast by the Capital Punishment Commission from inside the prison walls. There will be no narration from this point, and we will return to you once the execution is over. 
The sound of distant footsteps could be heard at the end of the corridor. They grew louder as the door to the left of a window at the end of the corridor slid open. Two guards in bright orange uniforms held their prisoner under the armpits as they turned down the main passageway. Newman's head had been shaven since the morning interview, and he was dressed in a baggy, blue denim prison uniform. He looked smaller than he did in the interview, almost malnourished. Each of the iron bars rumbled open as the prisoner and the guards neared the camera. They rounded the corner to the execution room, and Newman gave a frightful stare to the camera. Pan to the right, catching the three men as the massive steel door to the execution room was bolted shut. A second camera picked up the event as Newman was seated into the hardwood chair. Heavy black leather straps were tightened over his frail body as the defiant look in his eyes became distant. As they lowered the bowl-like hood with the attached electrodes to the top of his head, he again gazed into the camera, assuming a demonish character. They secured the bowl and attached another electrode to his left leg. All was made ready, and time was running out. Outside, the demonstrators were chanting, let him live. However, the thick prison walls were impervious to the outside pleas. No further word was received from the governor, and the efforts appeared useless. Another camera inside the prison picked up the image of a stocky man, perhaps in his late 40s, who was vigilantly holding a bronze chain watch in his hand. To the rear was a large lever he would pull, sending thousands of volts of electricity through the body of Willie Newman. The screens were split again and the man on the right, Newman, strapped hopelessly into a wooden chair was on the left. The seconds ticked away until the hour of death approached. The stocky man, like a cog in a larger machine, looked over to the commission members as he squinted. They nodded to him and he nodded back and he looked down at his watch until the minute hand reached 12. Then he swiftly pulled the lever. A minute billow of smoke rose from the bowl that was clamped tightly to Newman's skull. The feeble man's body stiffened to a rigid mass. The current surged higher and higher into his quivering frame. In a desperate attempt to retain life, which was so quickly fleeting his body, he clenched his fist. So hard did he squeeze that the normal pinkish tones were wrenched to a stark white shade of tightened skin. For a few moments, he seemed to be winning the battle of fighting the restraints, the stretched leather chafing and gouging his skin. However, he could not possibly combat the massive jolt of electrical energy that flowed freely into his inner being, and soon his ball-like fists slowly loosened and turned upward. A yellow, sizzling pus from the swollen blister of the second electrode began to flow down the smooth skin of his legs. His body was lethargic, and the men assembled could detect the unforgettable and pungent odor of burnt human flesh. The current was cut. A doctor for the commission rushed up to Newman and put a stethoscope to his unmoving chest. He listened carefully, choking from the enveloping fumes, and he heard a faint heartbeat. Reluctantly, he shook his head. They would have to jolt him again. The stocky man, with absolutely no expression on his round face, wobbled up to the lever and pulled it a second time. Another puff of smoke rose from the prisoner's skull as the voltage increased. The skin, his skin grew scarlet, and every inch of his body looked as if it were being fried alive. The unusual smell of singed hair and melted flesh permeated the small room once more. Some of the men coughed and others gagged as the execution went forward. They let the current run for a few extra minutes as they wanted the man dead for sure this time. Finally, it was ordered shut off and the doctor came forward one more time. 
he raised his stethoscope, and it did not take him long to reach the prognosis as he uttered the words everyone had been waiting for. He's dead. In came men with orange uniforms as the doctor fled the ghastly sight. They undid the straps and quickly took off the bowl, exposing the charcoal abrasion that once was the top of Willie Newman's head. Anyone watching the broadcast could have seen the contorted face of Willie Newman at the time of death, forever frozen in time. Hurriedly, they lowered Willie Newman onto a stretcher and whisked him out of the room. They ran down the corridor at a rather quickened pace, retracing the route that Newman had walked minutes before. The barred doors were closed behind them as they hurried past the end window and veered around the corner. There was a slight delay on the television screens as the last camera waited for them to arrive in the hearse, which was now backed up to a loading dock. The delay was short-lived as two more guards opened the rear door of the hearse. The other guards arrived with the body and slid the stretcher quickly inside and the door was closed. Seconds later, the hearse pulled away from the loading dock and the television screens went blank with snow. Television station returned to its normal coverage as the camera picked up the scene outside the prison. The demonstrators were melancholic as they had failed in their efforts. Crager and his lieutenants, in a state of disbelief, looked down at the platform amidst the gloomy scene. Shar attempted to restart his commentary. He spoke in a low voice, clearing his throat several times as his image was superimposed over the front of the prison landscape. Although he was a veteran newscaster, he was visibly upset. Not a very pleasant sight. However, according to the law, what will be, will be. He paused as he was handed a yellow slip of paper and he looked down at the monitor as he spoke to the viewers. I have just been told that baseball star Brian Carey has informed Channel 7 News that he will soon be arriving to speak to the personage assembled here at the Craigville State Prison. Channel 7 will broadcast Brian Carey's remarks in their entirety before resuming normal broadcast operations. Carey, of course, is one of the greats of the game and began his career five years ago with the Miami Tropics, leading his team to three American League pennants and a World Series win over the Houston Astros last year. Not only is he an outstanding athlete in the game of baseball, but Mr. Carey has distinguished himself as a skilled race car driver, parachutist, mountain climber, to name a few of his activities. On the other side of the coin, he's been an outspoken personality, to say the least, involving himself in a wide range of social issues, including the banning of nuclear power plants, the curbing of the defense budget, and a host of controversial issues. His speech here today, apparently the latest in his efforts. As Shaw spoke, a long blue limousine wedged its way through the crowd toward the platform. Darby O'Malley ran up to the rear door as the car slowed to a stop. The tall and lanky Carey emerged from the car and the crowd began to applaud. Carey was a strange looking man for his features seemed to be exaggerated. Long arms with oversized hands and a deep sloping forehead, large nose and a block like jaw. His thick black hair was trimmed on the sides and his sideburns were squared off at the bottom of his ears. He was wearing a light green warm-up jacket with the orange trim and an orange baseball emblem. He caught sight of Darby O'Malley as he raised his bushy eyebrows. Story later, Brian! Yes, that would be fine. He said in a low demeanor as he was surrounded by people. Had your supper yet, Darby? He said as he moved toward the platform. My treat! Shaw described the advancing entourage as the camera zoomed in on large orange letters covering the back of Carrie's jacket, simply reading Carrie. I believe that is Jackie Blair, the former 
Chicago Bears running back and Al Devine, the shot putter, who you see in front of Brian Carey, clearing his way to the platform. Said Shar as Carey climbed the steps of the platform, waving to the responsive crowd. He turned and shook hands with the much shorter Krager. Mr. Krager, my presence here is long overdue. I'm at your disposal in the movement. I can only hope that I can be of some assistance. Thank you. I think they want you to speak, replied Krager, who smiled for the first time that day, revealing a space between his two front teeth. Carey nodded and walked over to the microphone and adjusted it to his six-foot-four frame. They all looked up at this intense man, who some called a national hero, and others labeled him a good-for-nothing bum. He moved his thick lips over his teeth as he contemplated what he was going to say to them. I feel compelled, he said slowly, to come here today. I've held back from what my conscience has told me to do concerning the great moral issue of our day. I've held back for too long. Over 30 men have been executed in the past year. Most citizens don't even care, he said, boldly sending a tingling feeling through the stomach of Gary Phillips. said, raising his voice and drawing a hefty round of applause and shouting. Many people, he continued through the applause, in high authority have misplaced that concept. Why do we feel that committing further atrocity justifies the horrendous act of murder? Do we still cut off the hands of a thief? A bloody eye for a bloody eye? No, definitely not. I can't just buy that concept. Perhaps it's too simple just to say the two wrongs don't make it right, but maybe we just have to look at the simple and basic things in order to find the crux of any great moral issue. Let us kill no more. He shouted as they broke into a wild display of affirmation to what he was saying. Even the non-committal Phillips applauded as the huge man waited for the noise to subside. Future generations, future generations hundreds of years from now will look back to these days with guilt and disdain. Just as we deplore the more extreme forms of barbarism of the past, they will ask, why did they kill their own? Those not programmed are conditioned to the norm of society. Couldn't they revitalize these people into useful human beings? I think the answer to that question is yes. Man is a higher form of life, not a race of mindless avengers who think with their emotions, not with their brains. Let us kill no more. Let us not sit by and let this barbarism even, or even tacit consent is tantamount to pulling the switch. I urge people in this country to repeal the 27th Amendment, basing the Capital Punishment Act into oblivion. My friends, I do not claim to have all the answers, but I am willing to search for the answers and speak up against immorality wherever it exists. Let us speak up and search for those answers together and let us kill no more. Thank you. Thank you very much. Shaw came back in the air to close out the broadcast. 
that rousing appeal by Brian Carey, certainly more optimistic than we have witnessed here today, we wrap up Channel 7's exclusive coverage of the execution of Willie Newman. We now return you to our regularly scheduled programs. This is WFRZ in Craigville, New Jersey. From Phillips's vantage point, he could see Carey talking to the smaller Crager, who did not say very much, merely nodding his head to everything Carey said to him. Carey extended his hand to the life leader and then followed his friends to the limousine. Darby O'Malley was stationed next to the car as Carey approached. Well, have you got your pen and paper ready? Asked Carey as Blair opened the door for them. I'll use this if it's all right, she said as she held up her cassette recorder. Yeah, that's fine, agreed Carey as they slipped into the car. As the door to the limousine closed, people filled in around it like water flowing to an unrestricted container. They tried to catch a glimpse of Carey through the windows as the car inched out and onto the road. Phillips watched the long car turn onto the driveway, eventually climbing the ramp to the interstate and disappearing over the hill. Phillips thought, what powers Carey must command? He, slowly he returned to reality, making his way through the crowd and back to the MG. But as the sun was setting, he did not feel like going back to his house and took off down the highway. Join us next time for another episode of Absolute Zero by Robert P. Fitton. Produced by Fitton Theatre of the Words.